0: The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Thank you, Dr. Williams. When I was 10 years old, I joined the Girl Scouts. And this Girl Scouts had a motto, be prepared. How many of you were Girl Scouts? Not many, okay. Well, then I'll say it again, be prepared. That's a hard motto to learn. That motto has stuck with me my entire life. And as I'm here with you today, I'd like to challenge you to be prepared. Be prepared for what? Some of you actually think you know what you're planning for, for the years that you're here and when you leave here. Some of you are probably going to be very candid and say, I don't have a clue. That's why I want to challenge you to be prepared that whatever comes next in your life, you'll be ready for. Precisely because you don't know, you don't know what the next few years will bring, the next 10 years, the next 20 years, I would like to challenge you to learn everything you can learn, listen, observe, step out, step out of your comfort zone, soak yourself up in opportunities to learn. And a lot of these experiences will come from outside of the classroom. 10 years from now, many of you will be involved in businesses, in ministries, in relationships that you did not plan for and couldn't have predicted. But you have these years at Cairn to plan, to learn, to grow, and to broaden yourself as much as possible so that you'll be ready for whatever life brings you. The Girl Scouts said, be prepared. In my business life, we said, luck is where opportunity meets preparedness. But Winston Churchill, was much more eloquent as he articulated that same thought. Winston Churchill said, to each there comes in their lifetime a special moment when they are figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered a chance to do a very special thing, unique to them and fitted to their talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds them unprepared or unqualified for that which could have been their finest hour. He said that much better than the Girl Scouts did. When I graduated from Cairn several decades ago, I I returned to the job that I had been at, working at part-time while I was at Cairn. I had no idea what the Lord wanted from me. I had no idea what was ahead for me. My late husband, Charlie, had graduated from Cairn just before I started. In fact, Charlie was the reason that I came to Cairn. He forced me to come here. I had no educational aspirations of my own, and he said it would be helpful to him in his ministry if his wife had a college education. In particular, a Karen education. Karen hadn't articulated our mission at that time, but what Charlie wanted for me was that I would be educated to serve Christ in the church, society, and the world as a biblically-oriented, well-educated, professionally competent woman of character. And I have to say, not arrogantly, but thanks to Karen, that's what I became. Fast forward more than 30 years. I had gone from being an inventory control clerk to senior vice president of global operations for a Fortune 500 company. Charlie had died of a brain tumor, and I had decades of first-hand experiences with God being faithful, demonstrating his faithfulness to me. After I left that company 37 years later, I married Herb, and I became grandma to his ten grandchildren. Now, since Charlie and I had never had children, that was not in my plan but I have to say that was an unexpected, unpredicted delight. But what I'd like to share with you is what I learned at Cairn that would prepare me to become an executive in a quickly growing business, one that would take me all over the world, that would prepare me to integrate 60 other businesses into our business, and that it would allow me the expertise to supervise departments that were more than 5,000 people. When I left Cairn in my early 20s, I could not have answered that question. But as the years went by, and as I learned skills and developed more opportunities to experience things, it became clear to me that I had some significant advantages over my colleagues in the workplace, particularly in four areas, and all of which I had learned at Cairn. That surprised me, because I graduated from Cairn with a Bachelor of Science degree in Bible. And how was that going to prepare me for the business world? It actually prepared me for the world. First, I was grounded in my faith. Secondly, I knew that there was absolute truth. Third, I understood people. And fourth, I had examples from the Bible on how to lead. Those things gave me advantages over my colleagues in the workplace. I'd like to talk about each one. First, I was grounded in my faith. I firmly believe that there's an ultimate being, a God, and that God has revealed himself in Scripture. That belief, that level of stability, that groundedness, that confidence, gave me courage to to be able to do things that others might not be willing to do because their lives were so unstable, their lives were moving around. Whatever happened today or tomorrow affected them emotionally. Early in my career, during a team-building event, the facilitator asked us to say, three statements, each beginning with the word I. And some of my colleagues said things like, I like chocolate, or I played the French horn in high school, or I'd really like to have a Maserati. And when my turn came, I guess I didn't realize it was supposed to be a fun thing. So I said, I know who I am, I know why I'm here, and I know where I'm going. So that brought silence over the group for a while. I wasn't trying to be arrogant or showing off. I really meant those things. Who am I? I am a child of God. The God of the universe chose me and loves me and protects me. And why am I here? I am here to be faithful to him and to bring glory to his name. And where am I going? I'm going to spend eternity with that God who made me and loves me. That's it. Those are the important things in life. Not only did that bring attention to me at that facilitating moment in that team-building event, but it also gave me opportunities to talk to my colleagues as the months and years went by about what I meant when I said those things. As Christians, we will experience disappointments, anguish, humiliation, anger, frustration, but as Dr. Williams talked about last fall in his chapel series, Sound Judgment, thinking biblically about the disciplines of mind and heart. That was being grounded. He was talking about being grounded. The emotions don't control us. And when we are grounded, and we're in the workplace, or in our ministry, or in a relationship, we don't have to be controlled by the emotions that we're feeling right now. Our emotions are real, and our emotions are relevant, and they have to be dealt with, but they don't control me. And if we really believe that the self-control of Galatians the fruit of the Spirit is ours, then we need to exercise it. We need to practice it. We'll get better at it as we practice it. We need to pause and consider that God is in control. I may not like what's happening, but God is still in control. God is still sovereign. That can help us demonstrate a spiritual maturity that is unusual in those difficult moments, and it will be noticed by your friends and colleagues. When we're grounded in the work, and the word, and the will of God, we can find peace and stability in even the most unsettling times. And that stability, that groundedness, that confidence that we have, is distinctive. And it gave me advantages in the workplace. A second advantage I had: I was convinced that there is such a thing as absolute truth. A few months ago, I read in the New York Times an editorial where the writer said, "Truth." is a process of collective discovery. I wanted to scream, no, truth is not a process. Truth is not a pooling of our ignorance. Truth is not circumstantial. It doesn't change as the times change. My philosophy professor at Cairn, May Stewart, taught me that truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God. Truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God. I understood that there is truth and untruth. There's ethical, and there's unethical. And there are a lot of gray areas that we'd prefer there weren't gray areas. It would be nice if everything was just clearly cut, binary. But there's a lot of gray areas. But it helps me, as I'm looking at the gray areas and getting closer to the edge of unethical, I can look at it and say, does this correspond to the mind of God? And then stay far away from that line that would cross over into something that's unethical or untruthful. While I never tried to throw religion at my colleagues at work, I would remind them that integrity is pass-fail. There are no degrees of integrity. You don't have a little bit of integrity or a lot of integrity. You either have it or you don't. It's not on a bell curve. So as we would come up with policies for the company, I would have a strong stand on integrity. And I have to admit that in the early years in the electronics distribution industry, that made me a magnet for derision. I was silly, I was a Girl Scout, I, you know, that's not how business works, you can't be profitable this way. But it didn't stay that way. Our company became a beacon of integrity in the industry. We eventually got a Jewish and ethical CEO who would always come to me and say, BJ, doesn't the Bible say something about this? And then we would try to have policies that would reflect the biblical stand and It actually made it much easier to work there because ethics was something that we were going to be standing for. We had, dis- had to decide what our ethical standards would be. and As I worked with my CEO, we decided we needed to deal with violations before they occurred. Now, that sounds kind of crazy, but we need to have a policy, a stand, so that we can make a decision about what will happen when someone violates this before there's any names tied to it, before we can say, Oh, but I really like that guy. Integrity brings rewards, but there are also consequences. When you know that the decision you're going to make is going to negatively affect the profitability of the organization you're part of, and you're still willing to stand strong on integrity. Those are the consequences of integrity. But as a Christian, that's my only choice. I don't have another option. At one point at Arrow Electronics, the company I worked for, we had to terminate a very high-potential, young regional vice president because he cheated on his expense account. It was only $200. He had just moved for the company and he had six children. So as we agonized over this, we actually stopped agonizing fairly quickly because the decision had been made a while ago. We said to this man when he asked for mercy, he asked for mercy, we gave him the same answer that we gave every employee that we terminated for breach of integrity. You would think they would learn you think they would spread the word, but people are people and human nature is human nature. What we said to him when he asked for mercy, and I quote, reconsidering the decision to terminate you for this violation is not an option. We made the decision decades ago that integrity starts with the very small things. And if we are to build a culture of integrity, we have to take a firm stand on truth and honesty, even in expense reporting. We made that decision before we had any actual violation so that emotion would not get in the way when we had to enforce the decision. And over the years, we have been consistent in applying the same rules to everyone, regardless of the person's position or the value of the expense violation. I was able to train the people in our company on our stand on integrity and ethics. And I have to say, it became a very comfortable place to work for people who actually understood the difference between right and wrong. It was not so comfortable a place to work for those who didn't understand because there were consequences. I would say to my boss, we have to remember what Ecclesiastes says. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. That's human nature. And each of our employees had in their personal work area a laminated sign that said integrity, doing what is right despite the cost, even when no one is looking. The need for individual and corporate integrity was reinforced about 20 years ago. Uh, Many of you won't remember this, but you might have heard. A company called Enron committed one of the biggest financial frauds in the history of corporate America. Tens of thousands of people worldwide lost their jobs, their pensions, their partnerships, their financial security. And a number of books were written about that. There's even a movie about one called The Smartest Guys in the Room. When I read the book, The Smartest Guys in the Room, what really stuck with me was the final chapter. And that chapter was very appropriately titled, Isn't Anybody Sorry? Isn't anybody sorry? The authors note, no one said I was wrong. I should have asked more questions. I should have challenged management's assertions. I should not have looked the other way. In fact, many other people involved in Enron said they technically followed the rules. But the authors in that last chapter continue to accept this argument that they technically followed the rules, is to embrace the notion that ethical behavior requires nothing more than avoiding the explicitly illegal, that refusing to see bad things happening in front of you makes you innocent, and that telling the truth is the same thing as making sure no one can prove that you lied. Truth is absolute, and it corresponds to the mind of God third advantage that Karen gave me. I had an understanding of people. Now, we didn't have a class on people when I was at Karen, but I learned to accept what we are capable of and a sensitivity to people that not many others in the workplace had. I had learned at Karen that the people in the Bible that we studied, they were not robots or caricatures or actors. They were real people. They are a study not only in God's grace, but in human behavior. They were real, they had feelings, they had emotions, they made monumental uh, consequential choices, very bad choices, but there were some where they were courageous. There were some where there were glimpses of virtue. I learned about human behavior by studying the people in the Bible. And I had a great admiration for a lot of these people, but I actually feared some of them as well, because as I looked at their monumental failings, I wondered, could I end up like that? Could I make decisions that bad? I learned that we're all totally depraved. I learned that at Cairn, and that sounds really harsh. But it's true. And as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So my expectations of others as I went out into the world and into the workplace were that during those times, when people are not knowing the Lord or not close to the Lord, including myself, we could be deplorable. So I wondered about some of these biblical people. I don't want to call them characters because that's my whole point. They're not characters, they're real, they're people. They had feelings. Let's look at Hosea. Hosea is one of my favorite characters. How could he stay faithful to his Lord and to his wife, Gomer, knowing that she would be continuously unfaithful to him? When the Lord said to Hosea, Go, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. Hosea did what the Lord said. And God said, He loved her as the Lord loved the Israelites. I will heal their ways and love them freely. God's purpose was to save his people, to heal his people and save them. And Hosea's choices in life were meant to demonstrate God's love for the Israelites. What did I learn from the life of Hosea? The disappointments, the angst, the humiliation, the anger, and the forgiveness. I learned that it's possible to be selfless, to endure, to bear humiliation, and to repeatedly forgive, and repeatedly forgive, and repeatedly forgive. But it is unusual. And how about Jael? Jael and Judges was one of the characters who was my, my 10-year-old Sunday school girls, one of their favorite characters. In Judges 4, we read that when Barak uh, was supposed to go after and chase uh, Sisera and the Canaanite army, he said to Judge Deborah, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. Like, that's embarrassing. But he, that's what he said. And she says, okay, I'll go with you, Barak, but you're not going to get the credit for killing Sisera. A woman will get the credit for killing Sisera and she didn't mean herself. So when Barak pursued Sisera and his chariots, Sisera got out and he ran on foot, and he got as far as Jael's tent. This is wartime, and he's the enemy. But Jael took him into her tent, gave him to drink, and then gave him a place to rest. And then, as he slept, she took a tent spike and drove it through his head into the ground. Yes, that is graphic, Uh, it is not, it's probably a violation of our modern sensibilities, and it's brutal. But think of it as a study in human behavior. The internal angst, the steadiness, the courage that it took to beguile him, to get him to trust her, she decided to kill him, and then she actually went through with it. That, to me, is stunning, and that takes an unusual kind of mental, emotional, and physical strength and fortitude. I'm also intrigued by the mother of the man who was blind since birth in John 9. The Bible doesn't say much about the parents of the man except to say that they were not responsible for his blindness. They were not in sin and responsible for his blindness. In fact, John says that he was blind until this moment so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I, I often wonder how his mother felt That he was blind his entire life. He couldn't go to school like the other kids. He couldn't get a job like other young men. He was blind his entire life so that Jesus could perform a miracle and validate his message. Is that okay? I don't know, except to say that God is sovereign. God gets to choose. But I do wonder about his mother. And if I were the mother, would I be thrilled that he can now see But in the quietness of my heart maybe have a little bit of resentment of the hardships that we went through all of those years so that this could be validated, I would hope that I would realize that God is sovereign and be able to leave it at that. And how about another character or family? Lot's family. Lot's family has all the makings of a really raunchy TV reality show. You have Lot offering his virgin daughters to the townspeople so that he can protect the visiting angels. And the angels then protect the family, but say, you have to leave quickly, leave town and don't look back. So as they're leaving town the next day, Lot's wife looks back, turns into a pillar of salt, and now they flee away. And Lot's daughters are now bereft because they're not gonna be able to find husbands, they're not gonna be able to have children, so they make a plan and they execute the plan to get their father drunk, have incestuous sex with him, and bear his children. Is this what we're capable of when our emotions control us and we walk away from the Lord? We see in Lot's family fear, desperation, disappointment, and the consequences of some very bad decisions. But then there's Enoch and Amos and Rahab and Mary, so many people in the Bible who lived real lives had real feelings, demonstrated real emotions, and that taught me about human behavior. I liked about how they respond to difficulty. It taught me to look at people and see when there is something unusual or difficult in their life, how are they responding? How do they respond to orders from God that are frightening? On what occasions are they willing or not willing to compromise their faith at those moments of stress? I'll never forget the words of Job. Talk about stress with what he went through when he finally said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And yet I complain about so many small things that don't go my way. But with Job, it's though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Human behavior is complex, and it is highly variable. Sometimes it's admirably decent, and sometimes it's totally depraved. But accepting people as they are And accepting yourself as you are, being self-aware, understanding your motives, along with knowing who you are, gives you a huge advantage in life, and in any ministry, in any job that you're in. Studying the people in the Bible helped me to become adept at understanding them, and sometimes even predicting human behavior. And that's a skill. Understanding people is a skill that complements any career choice. Now I'd like to do a parenthetical. While I'm talking about people, one thing that I always have issues with is seeing people dehumanized and being called human capital. Now, in the classroom on organizational development, or in the business setting in HR when the executive comp consultants come, we can talk about human capital. But once you leave that classroom or your office and go out there on the floor, they are not human capital, they are people. And I'm, I'm concerned about this because in business, we think of capital expenses as things like tractors and um, blood analyzing machines and bottling machines and robots where you push a button and the behavior, the execution of that machine is routine and it is regular and it is systematic. That's not so with people. You don't push the button on people and get regular behavior from people. People perform in irregular ways. Um, many of which, it could be tied to their set of values. They have totally different values. Or it could be that they stayed up too late last night, or their online boyfriend just ghosted them, or they have a boss that they're trying to impress, or they have a boss that they're trying to undermine. People do not routinely perform as machines do. And we need to understand that in the workplace. And as their leader, you need to inspire them to do their best. And you might say, but I I signed their paycheck. That should make them do their best. Unfortunately, it doesn't. They need to be inspired. They need to be led. Planning or theorizing about the human, human capital can be done in your classrooms and in your offices. But once you get out there on the floor, be careful to treat them like people. They are not human capital. They need to be led. And you've heard the expression like herding cats. Cats will not be herded. People don't like being managed. You need to be able to say to your people, follow me, and then turn around and know that they're behind you all the way, going toward a common goal and a common um, project that you're being working on. That is called leading. It doesn't happen accidentally. You have to be intentional and purposeful as you develop a culture where you've inspired people to work together. To lead people, you need to understand them. I learned that at Cairn. And finally, a fourth advantage that I had, That I learned at Cairn. I learned how to lead from examples in the Bible. You don't normally learn how to lead unless you're in a situation, but if we could vicariously put ourselves in the situation of these people in the Bible, we can learn valuable lessons on how to lead. When the Lord selected a leader for the nation Israel, it says in the Psalms, Psalm 78, he chose David, his servant, to be the shepherd of his people, and David shepherded them with integrity of heart With skillful hands, he led them. Leadership is not just about skills. When I returned to my full-time job after graduating from Cairn, to be honest, I didn't have a lot of business skills. We didn't have a business major at the time. I had to learn them on the job, and I had to learn a lot of them by making mistakes, but they were based on the fact that I was grounded and I understood people. The requirements for leadership are integrity and skill, and that includes knowledge. Knowledge of skills, like decision-making, managerial courage, uh, driving for results, and skills are important, but they don't count at all unless you have that other piece that David had, integrity of heart. No one is going to willingly work for someone who has no integrity. And uh, as we said before, integrity is pass-fail, and we have to have both. A, A large amount of one, skills, doesn't compensate for a lack of the other. So you don't want to have someone with a lot of integrity and no skills. You don't want to have somebody with a lot of skills and no integrity. I have an opportunity each semester to be the case protagonist at Harvard Business School on cases where they talk about my company and an issue we had and how we solved the problem. I end every class with my thesis on leadership. I tell them that it comes from the Jewish Old Testament. It comes from the book of Proverbs. And it's one verse, and it says, my child, give me your heart, and let your eyes observe my ways. That means trust me, watch me, and do what I do. Lead by your personal example. People are observing and listening to us. Our classmates, our colleagues, our employees, our families, our friends, whether we want them to or not, they are watching us, and they are drawing conclusions from what they're observing. We read in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. Let your light so shine before men that they may see in your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You are an example whether you want to be or not, and people are watching. So you need to be intentional, lead, and be an example. As I think about what I learned at Cairn, I realized that some of the lessons that gave me advantages in the workplace were learned outside of the formal classroom setting. At least they were not things that I had to hear a lecture on and they get tested on. They were in the asides. Last December at commencement, Dr. Jonathan Masters um, did the address and he spoke about the asides, those seemingly small offhand comments made by his professors that were incredibly influential. Dr. Masters said, this is why we're all called to live lives of integrity and wholeness. Our influential offhand remarks are often the overflow of deeply held but unconscious convictions. They often reflect the things we assume, The little things that form the basis of everything else we say and do. Over time, the little things give you away. The Asides I learned at Cairn who I am, why I'm here, and where I'm going. I learned that there is such a thing as absolute truth. We are responsible to acknowledge it, and responsible to live by it. I learned that people are important. We need to understand them, and we need to care about them. And I learned to turn to the Bible to teach me how to lead, whether in church, in business, society, or the world. I learned many of those things in Cairn in the asides. I didn't get tested on these things in class. But I went out into the world, and I was tested in the world. But I had been taught well. Cairn sent me out as a biblically minded, well-educated, professionally competent woman of character. I left here prepared. Grounded for whatever life would bring. And that is my prayer for you. Prepare yourself. Be grounded. You will be tested in the world. And as we close today, I'd like to use the words of Jude. And Now unto him who is able to guard us from stumbling and present him faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. God bless you as you go. Thank <laughs> you.